0: Good morning, good to see everybody. What a beautiful day today. Coming off a beautiful week, wasn't it awesome? How encouraging was Steph's whole story too. It's just, uh, God is such a good, good God. We're going through uh, Luke's Gospel, so let's turn our Bibles to Luke 2. Luke chapter 1, um, Luke has set the stage. The stage is now set for the entrance of the King Messiah. You could probably stand and say this aloud because we've heard it so many times but let's stand for the reading of God's Word Luke 2. In those days Caesar August- Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Sound familiar? <laughs> this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria So, everybody went to their own town to register. Joseph also went up from his town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger. Because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch of their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause you great joy for all the people. Today, in David's city, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you, you'll find the baby wrapped in clothes, diapers, basically, and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared at the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his grace rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. We'll also look at verses all the way through 20, but you may be seated at this time. So yeah, this is a story I think that we've heard our whole life, whether you've gone to church or haven't gone to church, just, we've heard it because of a Charlie Brown Christmas. Come on, we've been watching that little Christmas special since we were kids, right? And probably besides the Grinch that stole Christmas, um, that's probably my favorite Christmas thing that I like to watch. Because it starts with Charlie Brown saying, I think there must be something wrong with me. That's so Charlie Brown, right? He says, I just don't understand Christmas. I might be getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. As if you're supposed to feel something during Christmas. And then Linus, of course, scolds him and says, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. (laughs) Then she says, maybe Lucy is right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Brownest. (laughs) This poor guy. But I'll tell you what, our world needs Charlie Browns. And sometimes they might feel like downers, but the Charlie Browns of this, of this world have this guileless quality to be honest about things as they really are, with no agenda. And I'll say it, Christmas has become a problem, because it's a direct reflection of our culture, It's filled with all the things that are supposed to make human beings happy. From the decoration, to the commercialization, to all the consumption. Christmas is about bigger, better, brighter, louder, pricier. The whole thing goes on. And it's left honest people like Charlie Brown saying, What's wrong with me? Why isn't this making me happy? I love how uh, Charles Schwartz, the guy who wrote this, in fact, I think he's a Christian. I mean, he really, through this uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas, I think plows through the layers of what Christmas has become and, and what it's supposed to mean to us and how it's supposed to make us feel. In fact, I love Lucy, and I, I won't stay too much longer on this, but there is Lucy, who I think is the epitome of our culture, who knows everything about everything, and is the boss of the whole show, and wants to put on the most spectacular Christmas uh, event ever. You guys probably remember it. And she assigns Charlie Brown the task of what? You remember? To get the tree. And of course, it's not just any tree, it has to be the most spectacular tree possible. And she describes it. What kind of tree is it? An aluminum tree painted in pink instead Charlie Brown give me this powerpoint picks out this one this poor humiliating tree and Linus is with him and Linus just says I don't know Charlie Brown <laughs> <laughs> know. and then he says don't, and don't you remember what Lucy said And then he says, and doesn't, this one doesn't really seem to fit the modern spirit. And of course, if you remember, Charlie Brown at that point gets really discouraged. But here's the deal. Charlie Brown is instinctively right. Somehow that poor, weak, humiliating tree gets closer to the meaning of Christmas. Christmas than anything that we will experience in three or four months from now. In fact, I love why he picks this thing out. He he picks it out. He says, he sees it. He says, this one needs a home. But what we have done with Christmas is we have so westernized it. We've decorated it with with our western materialism and our western consumption so that the the, the real meaning of Christmas is barely noticeable. Which is why I'm glad we're studying Christmas now. And I don't think there's a story that's been more westernized in the Bible than this one. And today I'm going to ask us or attempt to Uh, remind us that the Bible is not originally a Western book. It's a Middle Eastern book. It's written by and to Middle Easterns. And if we're going to understand Luke 2, we need to take off our Western glasses and try to put Middle Eastern glasses on. So let's go there. Luke uh, does what Luke does best. He starts by giving us the historical context. And so in verse uh, 1 and 2, he's, he's giving us just that, because he wants us to know that this stuff really happened, and he gives us the historical study in which it happened. So in essence, because he's writing this to Theophilus, he's basically saying, Theophilus, you know that year when the Roman emperor did that crazy thing, that census, and everyone had to go back to their own city, the city of their birth, and they had to register there, because... That's Rome. Rome likes to take its shirt off in front of a mirror and flex its muscles. And that's what it's, that's what, that's what it's doing here. It's, it's, hey, let's look at ourselves. Let's see how big we are. Let's see how powerful we've become. Let's see how many tax paying units we have in our empire. Let's start thinking about how much revenue we're going to be able to collect as we think about what we're going to build next. And here's the deal with Rome. Rome promised so much. In fact, the word gospel is a word that is first attached to Rome. Rome's always talking about gospel. Because Rome promised the world Pax Ramona, Roman peace. In fact, I think it's still what the West attempts to promise the world the promise of Western materialism and Western prosperity and Western ingenuity and technology and Western medicine and all the Western comforts and pleasure in our our vast arena of, of various forms of entertainment. But at this time, Pax Ramona, Roman peace, came at such a great cost because basically they said, if you don't do what we want and the way we want it and when we want it... We crucify you. I don't know if you know this, but Rome crucified thousands upon thousands of people. And so really underneath all the glitz and glamour, all the perks and all the comforts that Rome promised was really a heart of brutality. In fact, the crucifixion, they were basically the billboards of that day. So the next time you're driving along a highway and you're looking up at the billboard, something we all try to just kind of push out of our minds, the next time you're driving you look at a billboard, I want you to just imagine, imagine if there were two, three, four criminals hanging there on crosses. Because Rome would put these crucifixions in the most public, trafficked places they could find. To tell the world, we rule you, And if you don't do what we want, this is what we do to you. So when Rome does a census, you better believe you're going to do what they're going to ask. Even if you are eight to nine months pregnant, and even if it means that you have to take a 90-mile journey. Like, look at verse 4. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea. Bethlehem the town of David those are just words to us because we don't know like what so let me first of all just start with a map there's Nazareth up there that's where they live Mary and Joseph make their way down to the Valley of Jezreel they go on this side of the Jordan why because of Samaria you never travel through Samaria it's dangerous Samaritans and Jews hate each other so you go all the way down then you come to Jericho Then you take the Jericho Road to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem to Bethlehem Now that still doesn't mean that much to you so let me just show you a little bit more Ah this is the last leg of the journey From Jericho which if you can see that valley out there the green the little bit of green way out there That's Jericho From Jericho we are now looking about halfway between Jerusalem and jericho it 's desert it 's a fifteen mile last leg to the journey that actually ascends three thousand feet through hot desert. Jericho Road is also notorious for robbers. Let me show you a few other more a few more pictures there 's the road itself they 're not going. Up the road, they're going down the road. Mary and Joseph would have been going up that road. And you can kind of see the path there, too, how thin it gets, just to the left of me. Once they got to Jerusalem, now they just had a three-mile journey to Bethlehem. I don't know if you knew that Bethlehem was that close to Jerusalem. Uh, where you're sitting right now and where the third ballpark is, is the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Today, Bethlehem is essentially a suburb. Back then, it was a very tiny village outside of Jerusalem of a few hundred people. Now going back to this whole census thing, this is one thing I like to think about. What, what Caesar is doing for reasons of pride... Arrogance. Hey world, look at us. God allows him to do this for his own purposes. Why do Mary and Joseph need to be in Bethlehem? Why isn't Nazareth good enough? Because God is carefully crafting a story. And the story includes promises and the promises are to be fulfilled. And one of the promises that God makes to his people hundreds of years before Jesus is to the prophet Micah in Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are too small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. A king will come, a king of the Jews, but listen to what verses 2 to 4 say, or how it keeps going. Therefore Israel be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. In fact, that's everything that's going on historically. Jews from all over the world are returning to Israel. They're becoming one people again. And at this time he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for for then his greatness will reach the utter ends of the earth. That's how great this kingdom and this kingdom will be. But how is this king going to enter the world stage? Well, God's going to look for the smallest, least place possible, Bethlehem, which the text says you are too small even for Judah. And then look at our text, verses 4 through 7. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judah, to Bethlehem, the city of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. A son. She wrapped him in a diaper and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let me just start with with, with Joseph to just maybe clear up some of the um, wrong thinking that we have about this. Joseph is not coming to Bethlehem as a stranger to a bunch of strangers. Joseph is returning to his hometown. Joseph is a Bethlehemite. I don't think that's a word. I just made it up. (laughs) These are his roots. These are his people. This is his tribe. This is his family. Last Friday night, I went to a South Christian football game. That's where I grew up. And I went to South Christian. I haven't been back there hardly, but more than a couple of times in the last 20 years. And it was crazy. I went there and... Are you Rod? Wow, you look old. <laughs> Rod, Rod! Rod, come sit with us! Rod, come up and, 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 and join us! I'm telling you what... All Joseph has to say going to Bethlehem is, I'm Joseph, Healy's son, Mathat's grandson, Levi's great grandson. And there would have been an instant welcoming. Joseph, stay with us. Joseph, be with us. Add to this Middle Eastern hospitality. No one welcomes people like, like a Middle Easterner. And we're talking family. And not just any family. But what is Bethlehem called? What's it called? City of David. What's Joseph? (laughs) He's a royal. He's from the line of David. Trust me, every home would have opened their doors to Joseph. So when we have this idea that there was no room for them in the inn, what, what, what does that mean? Well, you can already look at our NIV and see that Neil and company have made some great corrections to our Western projections on this, on this te- text. First of all, as if there would be an inn or a Motel 6 in that kind of town in that kind of time. See, the NIV is getting closer when it says no guest room. Now, again, be careful not to project our idea of house onto that room. Houses in that day were essentially two room houses. The main room would be a family room where the entire family cooked, ate, slept, and lived. Think about that one room where the whole family cooked, ate, slept, and lived. The other room would be where the family kept its valuables, including the sheep and the goats. And every night, these valuables had to be brought in. Now, the earliest traditions, which go back almost to to the time of Jesus, these traditions surrounding the birth of Jesus say that Jesus was born in a cave. And see, all of this fits because often these two-story houses would be built on top of a cave, with the cave then acting like a basement. And so then they didn't have to bring the sheep and the goats into that second room, but they just could keep the sheep and the goats in the basement underneath in the cave. And so in this case, I picture there probably being a lot of family members in town for the same reason Joseph and Mary are in town. And I see the patriarch of this family doing the best with what he has, and he gives them the best place possible for Mary to give birth to her son. here's the deal I've been in these caves in fact I've taken it upon myself to sit in these caves I want to show you one of the caves that I sat in which is just a few miles from Bethlehem you can picture above that would be the house I'm sitting in that cave and what you can't see is what it smells like in there give me the other picture Dirty. Look at the ground. The whole ceiling is filled with soot, and there's animal dung everywhere, and it just reeks. And I don't know what this does to you, but 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 to sit there is an overwhelming experience. To think that the one who created this beautiful day and all the color. And spoke it all into existence, spoke the stars, put the galaxies in their place, pick that. This his place, where he would em- enter the world. I mean, imagine what God could do if he flexed his muscles. But the one with all the power came to give up power. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself and became nothing. He became poor. Philippians 2 says he became a slave. He was born into the lowliest conditions possible. If that isn't enough, look at who he came to. Look at verse 8. And there were shepherds. Living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Don't forget. (laughs) Just from fifth third park to here, where we're sitting, stands a temple. Ah, but God says, I wanna I wanna talk to these guys. Now, we like to ro- romanticize the shepherds, and in some ways, the Bible romanticizes shepherds because David was a shepherd and Moses was a shepherd, and God in the Bible is described as a shepherd. However, by the time of Jesus, shepherds were the lowlifes, they were the poorest of the poor. They were considered outsiders. In fact, their testimony, like, like Brandon mentioned about women last week, was inadmissible in court, they didn't count. They were considered unclean. To be a shepherd was a shameful profession. Do you remember Zachariah and Elizabeth? We talked about this a couple of, of weeks ago. How they were barren and how in that world, if you were barren, you were basically a social leper and all the shame that would have been attached to that. And then you have Mary and Joseph and they're not just poor But all the shame that would have been attached to their illegitimate pregnancy. And now you have these shepherds. And we need to be seeing this consistent thread. That Jesus just isn't born into the context of poor. But he's also born into the context of shame. To people in shame. For people living in shame. And then you go through Luke's Gospel. And we're going to see how much of Jesus' ministry is moving towards these people in shame. Are you getting it? I mean, we, we, we need to see the lengths that the God of the universe is immersing himself in shame, not just in his birth, not just in his life. And eventually, he's going to die the most shameful kind of death on a shameful Roman cross. So the shame of the world no longer have to live in shame. I'll tell you, these low-life shepherds got quite a show that night. Is that just what they saw—the the, 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 the heavenly chorus of angels that filled the skies? But listen to what they heard. Look at verse nine. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were megaphobic, terrified. But the angel said to them, "Do not be afraid." Behold, ah, NIV missed it. Put that in there, it's there. Do not be afraid, but behold, I bring you good news that will cause you great joy for all the people today in the town in David's city. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the Lord lying in a manger. Love this. The angel says, I bring you good news. I bring you gospel. It's no longer about the Pax Ramona, the gospel of Rome. God is now taking this term for himself. I bring you gospel. And and what's the gospel to someone who just has the Old Testament? What is it? It's Isaiah 52 verse 7. Where it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring gospel and proclaim peace and proclaim good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Our God reigns. That's the gospel. And I'll listen listen to the angel's song, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his grace rests. The gospel is about the reign of God breaking into chaos and bringing peace. I mean, what kind of peace are we talking about? Not the Christmas peace, that's peace on earth written all over our Christmas cards and goodwill towards men. Just kind of people all getting along and being nice to each other. Because part of the problem with our, our English word peace is it can't begin to, to capture the biblical word for peace. Which is what? Shalom. And shalom means more than we just all get along. Shalom is the word that best describes the good world that God created. It's a world that existed in perfect harmony. Adam and Eve were in perfect harmony, first with themselves. They were in perfect harmony with each other. They were in perfect harmony with the whole created order. And they were in perfect harmony with God. But Adam and Eve did what we so often do. They wanted God's job, so they rejected God, they pushed God God out, and not only then did the world fall back into chaos, but it says, and Adam and Eve were sent forth from the garden. That word sent forth in Genesis 3 is the Hebrew word for divorce. A great divorce took place, a divorce between God and Adam and Eve. And this walking with God in in the cool of the day, this perfect harmony was replaced with enmity. And I want you to know, ever since, we have been at war with God. We are hostile towards God, and a lot of people don't want to hear that. But Romans 8 verse 7 says it, that in in our natural mind, in our selfish self, We are at enmity with God. We are enemies. We are are hostile towards him. And why is this? Because we essentially want God's job. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge of our lives. And see, until you and I acknowledge this, that that our natural heart is hostile towards God, that we're mad at God, that we're at war with him, we're never going to really understand our hearts. Because our heart's natural inclination is to say, I want God's job, I want to be in control, I want to be in charge of my life. In fact, there are two ways we can do this. One, we can just overtly rebel against God and reject him. Or, like a lot of religious people do, we can do this covertly. Through all of our attempts at self-salvation and self-justification and self-righteousness. Through all of this religion, we can attempt to still be the one who's in, the ch- in charge, still calling the, tr- the shots and determining the outcomes. And instead of our rebellion being through just flat-out rebellion, it's often seen through all this proving and striving and performing. You see what Christmas is? The God of the universe has come to the world to make peace. Peace. It's the good news of God's reign coming from heaven to earth. God, like in creation, is once again moving into the chaos. He's going to unleash his reign and rule upon that chaos to bring peace. And I'll tell you what's at the heart of what God is doing recreation, new creation. Look at us, uh, I'll just read this 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. This is Paul. He's begging them. Be reconciled to God. Because God who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And you can read this in Colossians 1 verse 20 which we read today and add 21 to that. And and it's the same thing. Which means... The main problem with our heart is not ignorance where knowledge and information are the thing we need to get to remedy it. Our main problem in our heart is that our heart is at enmity with God, at war with him. And we need to be reconciled. And a Christian is someone... Who, like Paul in Romans 5, can say, and this, by the way, was Martin Luther's favorite verse Romans 5, verse 1 Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Do you know this peace? Are you still striving? Still trying to perform. Still trying to prove yourself. You know how we get this piece? It's what the angel says to the shepherds, verse 10. Do not be afraid, but behold. (laughs) Of course, the angel has to say, do not be afraid, because every time God shows up in the Bible, people are afraid. And why is this? Well, this goes all the way back to to the garden. Because when after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they feel? They felt naked. They felt shame. Sin caused this great shame, especially with God. So God comes looking for them and says, where are you? It's not that the God of the universe doesn't know where they are, as if they could really hide from God. But God's asking them, where are you and I and what happened to us? now we have gospel God coming to the world to say I come and do not be afraid why gospel Today, in David's city, a savior is born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. In other words, the promised Messiah that the scriptures talked about is finally here. And it's, he's, he's bigger than what they expect. He's not just here to deal with Romans and Caesars or oppressive politics. He's here to unleash new creation. To recreate a fallen world, to restore it to shalom, where you see the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, and the dead being raised. He comes to deal with our shame, the shame caused by the great divorce, to reconcile us to Himself. As Paul says in Corinthians, all of this is from God who is reconciling us to Himself through Christ. And who's the Christ? Don't miss this little clause in the text: Christ, comma, the Lord. If this were in Hebrew, it would read Yahweh. This is Yahweh. Who the Bible uh, describes as the all-powerful creator of the world. But more than just being the all-powerful, great, majestic one. He's also personal. He's a father. He's a lover. He wants relationship with us. And he has come to the world to make it right. To make us right with God. To deal with the fig leaves, to deal with the shame, to make peace, to replace the hostility and the enmity and the separation with reconciliation. And then when you kind of keep reading through Luke's gospel and you get to the end of the gospel, we see how he's eventually going to do it because the gospel is about this great exchange. And now we're right back to Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. Because it's a cross, a shameful, small, humiliating tree. I mean, the God of the universe is going to give up all his glory. He's going to lose all his peace. He's going to be cut off. He's going to be divorced from his father. He's, be, he's going to be a complete object of shame. And why is all of this happening? What is occurring there? Christ is exchanging his glory for our shame. Our shame for his glory. He's exchanging his peace for for all of our hostility. He's being cut off from God so that we can be brought into God. He who knew no sin became our sin so that we could be the righteousness of Jesus. Do not be afraid. But behold this. And see, the text says Mary pondered and treasured these things in her heart. We need to ponder these things deeply. We we, we need to think them out, but not just think them out. We need to think them in, into the deepest recesses of our heart. Did you show the picture of the manger? Yahweh, a manger. Behold it. Ponder it. And do it until this becomes your greatest treasure. Mary pondered these things, but she treasured them. Because when that begins to happen... We start to see that this whole thing is not about us, and it's not about our striving, and it's not about our proving, and it's not about our performing. It's about Him. You know what He's telling us? Look at me. You can trust me. Let's pray. God, give us eyes in our heart so that we can behold such awesome, precious things as this. And may our beholding cause us to treasure them above all things, to just treasure, treasure you, treasure your Christ, who he is, and what he's done. So we could be set free. Have peace with you. Peace. Perfect peace.